Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions sharing the stories, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and investors choosing to pursue a life of purpose and freedom. Today, we're pumped to have James Savetic. Um, he is co-founder of the B&B Inner Circle, and he's been doing lots of cool things. Um, so James, I mean, really excited to talk about your story and what your business is doing. Um, but before we do that, we'd love to kick it off with your craziest real estate transaction or experience, could be tenant construction related, that you've had in your career thus far. Yeah, absolutely. And excited to be here. Thanks a lot for having me on here, guys. I think probably the the craziest story I have was but even before I got started actually buying the real estate, but when I was managing properties. So we'll we'll I'll I'll share a bit more about kind of my my journey a bit later on. But when I first got started, I started managing other people's properties on Airbnb. And uh, early on, I didn't really know what I was what I was doing when I first started that. Um, didn't really know how to screen guests properly. And so as a lot of people probably probably have in their head when they think about Airbnb, one of the properties that I managed ended up having a party thrown at it. And that was one of the, the very first properties that I ever started managing. And so and it was this client of ours uh, and she basically had some uh, a number of other properties that we were looking to take on from her. So it was a really, really important client to us. And this particular unit that the party was thrown at, um, the, the owner actually lived right upstairs above it. And so me, myself and the other guy that I was running the, the business with, um, the, the property management company with, we're actually at a, at a party. It's a Friday night. We're hanging out, having a few drinks, like just hanging out. And we get a call at, I think it's probably about 1230 or one in the morning. Um, and it's from the owner of the property who's upstairs. And she calls us frantic and says, there's 30 people in the unit downstairs. They're throwing this crazy party and not really knowing what else to do. Um, him and him and I, my, my, uh, my co-founder in that business, Sam and I basically just got in a, in a cab, went over to, to the property as quickly as we could and just started pulling people out of the property left and right and just basically like settled everything, everything down. Um, and it ended up being pretty, pretty crazy. And in hindsight, I, I probably would have handled it a lot differently than going there in person and being an enforcer. I'm, I'm not really a, I'm not really the, <laughs> the build of, a, of an enforcer. Yeah. No, no, not really. I don't really have the, the body structure for that. So it ended up going pretty well though. We got everyone out and we, we ended up just basically finding the person right then and there for the, for the damage that they, that they had done, which after we we got them all kicked out, it actually ended up pr being pretty minimal. It was mostly just a, a night spent cleaning. So um, Sam and I we just spent the entire night cleaning the cleaning the property, and then we ended up going to to the owner and just saying, "Hey, we just e transferred fifteen hundred dollars into your account. We got that from the the guest because we just charged him for for throwing the party and for damages. Um, and we we've now cleaned it all up. So we went to her in the morning. We we sent her the money." told her we had cleaned everything up, showed her around the property. And she was so thrilled with having just gotten $1,500 e-transferred to her and having everything handled while she was upstairs and like didn't have to worry about it. That she, her literal response to us when we, when we walked through everything, she was like, okay, so when can we meet about these other properties I want to hand over to you guys? So ended up, ended up with a really great ending, but could have gone very, very differently. This is so cool because there's so many ways that this story could have ended. You're getting a call on a Friday night at 1230. I'm, I'm sure your first thought probably wasn't, oh, I'd love to go over there. <laughs> yeah. So kind of walk us through the thought process. I see elements of extreme ownership mindset in there, but but walk us through the full set of how you thought through this and you know why you did what you did. 
Yeah, I think like at the at the end of the day, we just realized that um, I mean, every client is an important client, but even more so when you're first starting your business, it's like and we, we only had, I think, like three property owners that we worked with at that at that point. So this client was so important to us because it was not only is it 30 percent of our business currently, but we also have the ability to get more properties from that owner. And then we can also end up using that owner as a reference for other clients that we want to bring on. So it's like the the second and third order consequences of losing that client in that way would have been massive. So we just realized the importance of dealing with it. And at that point, it was, we had already made mistakes that we couldn't go back in time and fix it, You know, we learned from this. We learned like, we've got to screen guests better. We've got to, uh, we've got to make sure we validate people's IDs. Cause this guy ended up being 18 years old. He shouldn't have been able to book the property to begin with. Um, and so we learned a bunch, but there's nothing we could have done at that point to go back in time and solve it. We had to solve the problem right there, which is that there's a, a property owner who's got her family living there and there's 30 people she doesn't know right below her. So like, the only thing we can really do at that point is go by and deal with it. We, you know, in hindsight, probably would have called the called the police, but that would have been a, a big disturbance to the property owner as well, and the neighbors would have been would have been alerted to that. So, you know, our, our first instinct was like, you know, that we don't have any systems built out at this point to be able to delegate this to someone else. We've just got to go take care of it. Let's go deal with it, and then, um, and then from there, it was just like, let's do everything we can to retain this this property owner. And so I remember. When we when we got the money from the uh, from the guest, I looked to Sam and I was just like, "Sweet, let's e-transfer this right to CC. Hopefully, that will help her her feel better about it if she at least like get some some compensation for it." And then we literally stayed up all night cleaning it because it was like, we, "We've got guests coming the next day. If we cancel those guests, it's going to cost the property owner money. Um, so like, let's just clean this up right now because our cleaning company is not going to come by at two a.m. Um, so we've just got to clean it up and and take care of it." Yeah, I love it. I love the ownership mindset. I love um, pretty much the whole way you process that. Um, so I'm going to ask you a question here. This actually reminds me of something that happened to me, right? So I mean, I actually had a conference in Indianapolis, um, and I got an Airbnb. It was one half of a duplex. And um, yeah, a huge raging party next door. Um, bunch of 18-year-old kids. Like, I mean, I mean <laughs> if I was 18 and Airbnb was an option, I'm sure I would have tried to party too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, so, I mean, how frequently does this happen and, and how do you prevent this from happening? Yeah. If, if you don't know what you're doing, it can be relatively frequent depending on the property that you have and how you've got it set up. Um, so there, but there, you, if you do things properly, almost never, um, like in the last, so since then uh, I've managed, I met, we've grew our property management company to about 35 properties. We had one other party that was nowhere near the, 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 kind of Scott scale of this one. It was just a smaller party that ended up being like a noise complaint. Um, and then, and then since then I've also gone on to buy between my business partner, uh, Riley and I, we've got I think about eight, eight Airbnbs now that we own, haven't had a single party at those yet. So, uh, if you know what to do, it's, it's really infrequent. We just didn't know what to do at that point. So like the things that we always do now to, to prevent it, Keep our nightly rates high. People that are partying tend to be looking for really cheap places, especially when it's a place that's um, that's cheap for what you get. If you get a really big property for for a really low rate, um, then that can that can cause issues. Having a security deposit on the listing, um, we avoid certain booking platforms. So, like Booking.com is a platform similar to Airbnb, but 
instead of the the platform running the the client the guest credit card you as the business owner run the the credit card so you've got to have all the right fraud detection in place to make sure it's not a fraudulent card in this case he was able to book with someone else's card and someone else's id um, so that we didn't know what age he was so we avoid certain platforms like that um having two night minimum stays is another big one People that are looking for parties are always looking for a one night stay. So if you just set a two night minimum, then they don't even see your property when they're looking for those one night stays. So there's a lot of things like that that you can do to just, you know, try to try to avoid the parties. And then the, the last piece is just screening guests, just actually having conversations with them to vet why they're coming in and make sure that their, their reason for coming in and seeing your list listing, especially if they're traveling locally, like if they're from that city and they're booking an Airbnb in that city, we get a little bit more suspicious about it and make sure that they have a good reason. That was a tremendous and incredibly detailed answer. I mean, so I mean, there's like six or seven action points there for the audience. So thank you so much for that. Yeah. James, like, let's bring this back to the beginning, right? So you said you started off managing these properties. Like, what got you interested in real estate? Um, what drove you down this path? Poverty, basically. Uh, I, <laughs> so I, the first business that I, that I started was a watch business. So I was, I was um, like having watches manufactured overseas in Asia and then shipping them over to, to Canada. And this is before I knew anything about like e-commerce or drop shipping. I didn't even know what that was. I just knew that I really liked watches. And so I wanted to start a watch business, not the right way to start a business. Um, and so I basically was coming out of, uh, coming out of a like more corporate job where I was managing a team. And then I, I had some money saved up. So I dumped it all into this watch business. And long story short is that it tanked and left me in a bunch of debt. And so I was looking for a business that I could start without having to put any money into into like the startup costs, like buying inventory, things like that. Um, and so my buddy Sam, who I who I ran the business with, um, he basically was working with another company that was helping foreign real estate investors to buy properties over in North America. And what his what his company had him doing as part of his role was reaching out to property management companies who could manage the properties for those investors. And he starts reaching out to some short-term rental uh, property managers. And he calls me one day and he just goes, James, like I've been researching this and I've talked to like 50 and 20 of these property managers. None of them are any smarter than us. Like they're just kind of mom and pop shops and they're making really good money doing this. Um, and so he basically just pitched me on the idea of doing it. And I, I decided, yeah, like this is a great business because I can, I, it'll leverage the sales skills I had. I didn't know much about being in the product space. My background was in service. So I felt really a lot more comfortable with that. Um, and it was it met the criteria of not needing any any startup ca uh, capital. And the nice thing as well is it was going to be monthly, like consistent cash flow, as opposed to lumpy income. Like if I sold the watches and then, or if I didn't, then I was kind of stuck. So it was really nice that way. And so I ended up basically just just saying, okay, I'm going to come back. I was traveling at the time, trying to kind of run away from my problems. I was over in Asia where it was cheap to live. And um, I came back for, for the Christmas holidays. And I basically made a deal with myself that if I, could, if I could sign at least one property under management while I was back for the Christmas holidays, then I would stay, stay in North America, stay in Canada, and I would keep growing the business. And I ended up signing, I think it was like three or four properties over the Christmas holidays. And so I decided to stay and then kind of grew up from there. Super cool. So obviously you're introduced to this by your friend. You're getting into this business. Like kind of just walk us through the nuts and bolts. Like, I mean, I think most real estate agents understand a little bit how property management works. How does Airbnb property management differ than traditional property management? Yeah. So it's, 
it's um, there, it's basically more work and and more pay um, per property. So um, for each property, like with a long term rental, you're just finding the tenants and then managing tenants. But tenants are pretty passive if you do a good job selecting them, right? Um, and you've just got like one turnover a year or one turnover every couple of years. Whereas with short term rentals, there's a few more kind of moving pieces. So you've got um, actually listing the property on platforms like Airbnb, and then um, managing that listing is a relatively active process. So things like pricing optimization, uh, responding to guest messages, making sure that they have all the information they need, that kind of thing. And then um, you're also then facilitating the uh, and organizing the cleaners coming in between each guest once the unit turns over. Um, and then any maintenance that's needed on the on the property, because with a short term rental, there can be more wear and tear on the property. There can be more maintenance that's needed. And so where um, where like a long-term rental manager is usually going to charge somewhere like a five to 8% fee, short-term rental manager is 20% to 30% typically. Sometimes it can go up as high as 50% in certain markets. Um, and so that's basically what we were doing is we were going and, and going over to landlords. Initially, we started out going to both long-term rental and short-term rental landlords. So we'd go to a, a, a property owner that had their property listed as a long-term rental. And the pitch there was, hey, if you invest a few thousand dollars into furniture and you let us manage it for you, it'll be just as hands off as it, as it is now because we'll be managing everything. We'll take a 20% fee. And even after that 20% fee, you're still going to make 30, 50, 80% more than what you are right now as a, as a, as a long-term rental. And then for the property owners that already had the place on short-term rental, the pitch was a bit different, but it was essentially, hey, you know, all that stuff you're doing right now, messaging the guests, organizing the cleaners, and it's like a pain because you have a nine to five job and you're at work trying to respond to guest messages. Why don't we do that for you? And we'll actually do the pricing of it better than what you would do on your own. So even after our 20% management fee, you're probably going to make about as much as you're making right now. And we could run an analysis and show them the actual numbers behind it. And they could see how much they would make after our fee versus how much they're making now. And then basically look at it and go, yeah, it's actually worth it because I'm saving all this time, not having to deal with the headache, and I'm probably making just about as much. Definitely. So, I mean, um, you just defined two offer propositions there. I would love to know which one of those you had better results with. Both of them actually converted really well. The one that we ended up focusing more on was uh, was the property owners that already had their place listed as a short-term rental because for that, we didn't have to sell them on short-term rental. We just had to sell them on us. Whereas with people that were that had long-term rentals, we had to sell them on switching over to short-term rental and having us manage the property. And then also there was like more work involved because we would have to coordinate getting the property furnished, getting like an interior designer in, getting it furnished, get all the furniture set up. So there was um, just more resistance overall on the with the long-term rentals, getting them to change what they're already doing. Uh, whereas the short-term rental, it just ended up being a really, really easy sell for the most part. So this leads me into a question. I actually have two questions, so I'll ask them in order. So question number one is, do you have to have a real estate license to to run this in your state as a property manager? It depends. Um, short, Typically, the way that it, it's structured is that there's, there's always a, a legal definition for what actually constitutes property management. So even though I'm calling it property management, but from a legal standpoint, uh, managing short-term rentals in most places won't fall under the the definition of property management because typically that has to that has to involve like the negotiation of leases, dealing with the uh, with like um, landlord and tenancy act. So stays over thirty days are typically where that's going to fall under. There are some places the best thing to do it varies state by state. The best thing to do is just do a quick Google search. There's like an, uh, a 
a website called allpropertymanagement.com that generally has a pretty good layout of what's, what's required and what's not. And it'll link to the actual legal documentation. But I guess the shorter answer is that in most, um, in most states, you don't actually end up needing a, a property management uh, license if, as long as you're not taking stays of longer than um, 28 or 29 or 30 days, whatever the state defines as a, what falls into a long-term rental. Cool. So my second question goes into a strategy question. I have a, a strategic mind. I can't help it. So, and you're talking about sales, which are like passion items for me. So when we're, when we're going into some of these topics, have you guys tried arbitrage since you talk about the difficulty of people getting that mental shift, have you thought, man, I could just go to these landlords. They're, they're collecting 1500 bucks a month. I'll guarantee them 1800 bucks a month. I'll become the professional tenant. I'll furnish them and run it and collect the spread. Have you guys thought about that or, or done that at all? Yeah, we have. Um, so that was, we, we ended up doing that. And for, I think that a lot of people, it's become a really popular idea, this rental arbitrage thing. I think a lot of kind of gurus in the space have popularized it recently. And I will say that it's not all it's cracked up to be. There is an opportunity there. It is good. Uh, but there's a lot, there's a few caveats that don't, that kind of get like glazed over when people are talking about it. So we've done it. Um, and what I can say is that on an average unit, if you're renting it for $1,500 a month, let's say after you pl- you pay for your cleaning expenses, your, um, your like guest communication, your software, um, your, you know, and then your rent, obviously, and everything else there, like your rent, utilities, that sort of stuff, you're probably going to be netting about $300, $400 a month on that property. And to bring that property on board, you had to pay $1,500 for first month's rent, $1,500 for last month's rent, probably a $300 security deposit or so. And then you probably furnished it for about three dollars to $5,000, right? So you're in that thing for like around $8,000, which means it's going to take you like a year year and a half, two years, just to hit break even on an average property. And all that time, you're carrying a huge amount of risk because if the property owner decides, hey, I don't want you to manage it anymore, all you've got to show for, for the work you've done so far is some used furniture, right? Like you don't, ha- you don't actually own equity in the building. You don't have an income producing asset that you actually have control over. You only have control so long as the landlord the building, like if, if you're in a condo building and the HOA or the condo board decides, no, nope, we're not going to allow it. Or if the city regulates, you can really quickly be kind of left high and dry. Um, so there are some what I call unicorn properties that you can rent for like $2,500, $3,000 a month. And they'll bring in like nine k a month on, as a short-term rental. And with those, your net is huge. And so you can, you can recoup your initial investment in a few months and then be cash flowing really well. And so those properties are really great, um, but they are really, really few and far in between that you can find ones like that. Um, and so for the average property, it, the, the economics just don't make sense. And the risk of, of growing the business is, is pretty substantial. And then the other challenging part about it is that like, if you're looking for a good lifestyle and cash flowing business, not a good one because as you build up cash flow, if you want to grow your your monthly income with the rental arbitrage, you constantly have to take it take that cash flow and reinvest it into the next unit. Whereas if you're doing it on a percentage management fee, twenty percent of zero is still zero, so you can never lose money. You don't put any initial investment into the into the property, so you're profitable from the moment you start managing it, and it doesn't take any more money to keep scaling the the business because each property costs you zero to bring on. So that's why we really stuck with that model a lot better. Um, yeah, that was an absolutely fantastic question. 
Um, you just mentioned the unicorn property. Um, obviously, few and far between. Um, could you define like what is the difference between a unicorn property and an average property? Yeah, a, a unicorn property, like you, you've really got to look for it. And nowadays, we try to buy these properties, and that's where where the the real money is at. Um, in my opinion, is um, a unicorn property is one that is going to do way better as a short term rental than it will as a long term rental, because almost all properties will do better as a short term rental than a long term rental. But some properties will just do like leaps and bounds better for certain reasons. Um, and so for those ones, there's like this real untapped opportunity where you're looking at it and it's a diamond. And then the property owner's looking at it and they're like, it's a rock, right? So a really good example of this was um, there was a property that just crushed it for us so we, that we did a rental arbitrage with. And it was, so we are managing properties in Toronto and for anyone that's familiar with Toronto, anyone that's not, I'll just give a quick layout. There's like central Toronto where all the tourists want to go. That's got like Union Station and then it's got, um, and that like Union Station is the hub there and you've got all the entertainment district and everything around there, right? And then you've got the airport that's like a 35, 40 minute drive from downtown. And instead of taking a drive, you can take what's called the Union Pearson Express. It's an express train that has like two stops and then it gets to Union Station. It goes direct from the airport right to the center of the action. And if you're living in Toronto, you kind of want to be in this hub. Um, that's like where the, the cool places to live are. So if you're out here, like on the outskirts, it's not really that great of a place to live. Um, and if you're a tourist, you want to you have quick and easy access to right here at the hub at Union Station. And so we had this property that was literally right on that Union, uh, Union Pearson Express line. For a resident, doesn't really matter because like getting down to Union Station, you can do it from most parts of, of Toronto relatively easily. But Pearson is the is the one that's uniquely really valuable to, to tourists. But for an average resident, they're not using Pearson Airport that much, right? Like they're they're only using it maybe a couple times a year if they're flying out. And so this place we we could rent for I think it was like this cool lofted apartment, three bedrooms. We could rent it for like thirty three hundred dollars a month, I think it was. And it would do in the low season six, seven thousand dollars a month. In the high season, it would do like anywhere from nine to twelve thousand dollars a month. Because for tourists, it was just incredible. They could they could go from Pearson right to the door in like 15 minutes. And then they could go out their door and be at Union Station in another 15 minutes. So it was just really perfect for them. Um, and it was a large enough property that it could accommodate big groups, which is pretty rare in Toronto. Um, so it, like it, it varies from area to area, which which properties are going to do well and why. But you just want to look for for properties or or units that have like this really specific draw that makes them attractive to business travelers or tourists or whoever's visiting as a short term rental, but that they aren't that attractive as long term rentals for someone that wants to live there. This is so cool. So you describe their lo location. And so essentially, like if you were to put together a list of things that typically makes things, things a home run, is it more location based? Is it more amenities based? How do you generally know if a property might be a home run for someone that might be thinking about buying an Airbnb? Yeah. When, when we're buying like location is a, is a big one. Um, another thing about that property that I, that I didn't mention was that it had lofted bedrooms. So, uh, basically it would have like, it would have there's two bedrooms where there'd be a queen bed and then a staircase up to a like loft area with another bedroom. If you're living there with roommates, you don't want your buddy like sleeping on top of you when in like the same bedroom. But if you're traveling, who cares, right? So that was another element. So like the layout of the property can can be an important factor as well. Um, but for us, when we're buying, 
we like to buy properties um, that ideally for us don't have neighbors close by just because if you don't have neighbors to complain, don't have neighbors to disturb, like that's going to be a big bonus. Um, we like to look for larger properties as well, because as you go up in size, you typically can command a higher rate because you have less competition. If you can sleep more people and more people that are staying, they'll be able to like split the cost amongst each other. So 10 people, if they're staying at your place, they might pay a thousand dollars a night because that's only a hundred dollars a night per person. Right. So larger properties tend to do well. Um, and then there's cool stuff we're doing now with like adding geodesic domes and like auxiliary dwelling units and stuff. So if you have some acreage, that can be a cool play as well. Um, lots of different opportunities to, as far as like what to look for when you're, when you're buying, it really depends on the market that you're buying in and what kind of guests you're attracting to the place. Cool. And you said something I'm not familiar with geodesic domes. Tell me about that. What is that? Yeah. Picture like this semicircle. It's like just a semi-sphere, half a sphere, and it's just planted on the on the ground. And it's um, got like either 30% of it or the whole thing will be transparent. So you can sleep in this like kind of igloo-like structure and sleep out under the stars. It's really cool. You can kick them out. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. It's a really cool glamping yeah. setup and they can range anything from like just in, just big enough to put like a bed and some night tables in and have like a cool spot to sleep um, to you can like kit them out with a bathroom and a kitchenette and have them be really big. So they're pretty cool. Everyone who listens to our show knows Matt and I are passionate about obtaining financial freedom through real estate investing. We also know that everyone's situations and goals are different. And while there are programs out there that show you a path to financial freedom, Many of these programs are just too cookie cutter and don't take your personality, situation, and desired outcome into account. Think about the number of times you have watched a guru online and tried to do the exact same thing as they did, but had nowhere near the same results. You are not alone. When I got started, I was continually paying for courses and getting only partial results until I discovered the path that made sense for me. And the results prove this. Most online course creators have let us in on their dirty secret that 90 to 95% of their students never complete their course and achieve their desired outcome. This is why we have opened up a few one-on-one coaching slots with Freedom Chasers Coaching, where you can get a plan to financial freedom that is completely customized to fit who you are and where you want to go, and most importantly, how you want to get there. Where you can get a plan to financial freedom that is completely customized to fit who you are, where you want to go, and how you want to get there. The benefit of working with Matt and I is that we are interviewing between 5 and 20 successful people every single week. We have accumulated hundreds of seven-figure strategies and gotten the inside scoop from these successful entrepreneurs. We are able to work with you to pick the strategy that will fit the best and then help you create the custom plan and steps to take you quickly into financial freedom. The fastest way between two points is a straight line. If you want to get rid of the many curves in the road that can make the journey longer and more costly, then go to coaching.freedomchaserspodcast.com and book a call with us, and let's get you on a straight-line path to freedom. Yeah, these are what Larry White was talking about, I believe, Matt. Um, So cool. Um, I really love all these strategies, like, so much. Um, I would love, like, I don't want to know the current challenges that you're facing now in your business. I would like to know the challenges that you faced in the past that you've overcame, let's say the top two. And how you overcame them? Yeah, good question. I think um, with with property management, there was a, there was a lot, and then going. I think one of the one of the most recent ones that I that I overcame that it was like a couple years ago was, you know, I, I spent all this time managing properties on Airbnb, and I didn't actually like I, I'd always wanted to buy the properties, but I just didn't know how to actually invest in real estate. 
Um, and it was always this thing for me where in the back of my head, I knew that owning the property would make a lot of sense, right? Because here I am with all this knowledge and experience with Airbnb and short-term rentals and property management is only so great of, a, of an opportunity vehicle, if you will, right? There's only so much leverage with it because you're still doing the active work, but you're not building the, the equity from the property itself. It's not appreciating. So um, from that standpoint, I like, I always saw that opportunity, but I didn't have, I didn't know where to start when it came to actually investing in the, in the properties. And for a long time, I just kind of put it off and put it off and put it off. And so basically how I ended up overcoming it was partnering up with Riley, right. Was partnering up with him where he had the exact complementary skill set that I was looking for. He had, he was in literally the opposite boat as me. He had, his background was investing in long-term rental, multi-residential properties. So he was buying like duplexes, triplexes, and he had always been really interested in short-term rentals, but didn't know anything about Airbnb. Here I was with all the experience about Airbnb, but no experience with buying or renovating properties, right? And so Riley and I just ended up partnering up. And that's that's something that I've done a, a number of times over the years, not in like business partnerships necessarily, but I always try to learn from other people who've just been there, done that. Because with property management, I didn't do that. And I really wish I could have. Uh, because it would have saved me things like that big party and like no, just knowing those things, not having to make those mistakes and learn from the scars. Instead, just learn from someone else's mistakes. So that was really great. And I, I overcame that one by partnering up with Riley. We shared responsibilities, brought our own unique skill sets to the table, and that went really, really well. Um, and then I think, yeah, th that's probably the the biggest challenge that I can that I can think of Um in recent years that I've overcome that I feel like was a, was a, a big hurdle. Cause it was, it was literally like years that I'd been thinking about it at that point going, I really want to buy these things, but just don't know how. And then finally it just ended up coming together and working. Yeah. And, and I love like it, it essentially became a who, not how that was the solution to your problem. So, I mean, I would love, you mentioned that you and Riley have very complementary skill sets. Um, could we, just real quickly, you don't have to go super in detail. Just quickly define like uh, which role you have and which role he has. Yeah, for sure. So, um, so like initially, uh, when we're looking, if we look at like what we're doing now, where we're we're basically buying properties for short term rental, and then we're also coaching people on how to how to buy properties, showing them the ropes. And so Riley and I, our our skill sets are, if you go through the pros from start to finish at a, at a high level, it's basically you're looking for properties and analyzing them. And so Riley, his, his skill set when he's looking at properties, he's really good at finding those distressed assets and knowing what is an, enough work and what is too much work. I look at a property that like needs renovation work and I go, oh, I don't know. I, I just don't have the, the ability to see what the potential is there and see what it's actually going to look like. Nor do I have the ability to know whether this is going to cost $10,000 or $80,000 or what to look for that might be hidden from my site that's going to cost an extra $20,000. So Riley looks at the property from that angle of looking at what, what renovations are going to need to be done, how we can lift the value to get some forced appreciation from the property, that sort of thing. I look at it and I go, I can look at the data from AirDNA for, for, you know, for a short-term rental data mining platform, and I can look at and analyze how well is this thing going to do as a short-term rental. So that's how we, how we kind of partner up when we're analyzing the deals. Then for buying the deal, Riley largely kind of goes in and negotiates the deal. He's, he's getting the best deal possible, bringing the sellers down in price, uh, facilitating, you know, getting the financing, getting really good rates on that, um, getting the insurance set up, all that stuff. And then from there, it kind of hands back over to me, where I then have the team go in and make sure it's designed really well. We get the right amenities. We get all the right furnishing, the right decoration, get it all listed. 
Um, and then both of us kind of work on, on the back end to manage it where I'm kind of uh, making sure that the pricing is optimal, that we're maximizing our returns. He's got really good systems for managing the portfolio, got a really good team under him to make sure the guest communication gets done effectively. So we're kind of sharing that responsibility on the on the management side of things. This is awesome. So my natural question is, is do you just do this in Toronto or do you do this throughout the US as well? Like if someone maybe say happens to own a property in Chicago area, like do you do Airbnb management in just about anywhere? Yeah. So we, we basically at this point now, so we basically have transitioned just to managing our own properties that we own. Um, and so we've got a few different pieces going. So, um, I've got, I basically started a, a training program a number of years ago after I got some really, uh, really great results in my property management business, um, uh, who that basically teaches people how to manage other people's properties on, on Airbnb. So if someone were to happen to, to have a property in Chicago, I probably know someone in Chicago who, uh, who runs property management and would do a really good job managing it uh, as a short-term rental. And then Riley and I, as far as our investing goes, we're investing in Canada. So we're investing... Um, like north of Toronto, Riley's got some properties over in Nova Scotia as well. We're looking to get into the U.S. pretty soon here as well. Um, but a lot of the stuff transfers really well. Some of the nuances, like financing, for example, is a bit different in the U.S. versus in Canada. But a lot of the, the core stuff is pretty similar. So we work with students in all different parts of the world, Canada, the U.S., Europe, Asia, as far as buying the properties. Um, a lot of it maps really, really well. There's, like I said, certain parts that differ, but a lot of it is, is relatively the same and kind of universal. Super, super cool. So talk to me about, so we're, it's, we're always curious about mindsets. We're always curious about the strategies and things like that that come with that. So you're starting to have a lot of success. You have multiple paths you could choose. You could choose to scale crazy big and managing people for others, uh, properties for others, or you could do what you've done. Can you describe like what led to the choice of just managing your own and going the coaching route versus like being like a crazy practitioner and scaling across the world? Yeah, it's, it's largely a lifestyle decision for me, honestly. Like managing other people's properties. And, and even so one of the things that Riley and I started doing was like co-investing. We would, we had a number of investors that came to us and they were like, here, take my money and just invest it, invest it with me. Cause Riley had done that on the, on the residential side in the past. And once we started working together, doing short-term rentals, there's quite a bit of demand. And we, we were really, really selective about who we work with on that front and don't do a lot of deals. They certainly don't do nearly as many deals as we could be doing because Working with investors and similarly working with uh, with property owners when you're managing for them, it's um, it's tough to have a really great lifestyle if you're working with people that have really that are really stressful themselves and they have they're like you know tightly wound. So we're one of the big things for Riley and I is the beer test. Like, would we sit down and have a beer with this with this person that we're gonna you know invest with, or or if I was managing that I would probably have a similar mentality around it because if other people are stressful and they're freaking out um, and they're calling you all the time, it's like, I don't, I just don't want to be involved with that too much. So um, for us investing in properties ourselves, that's a really great avenue for us to grow our wealth and build some really great cash flow um, That's relatively passive leverage the, the skill sets that we have. And then coaching other people, like that was my background um, from before was managing a team and coaching people. I just love that. Um, and I, I, I find that it just makes me even better at what I'm doing when I'm teaching it to others, constantly refining my skill sets, 
getting to see more data because I, I love looking at the data of it. So I love working with like, we've got like 70 some odd students that we work with now to help them investing. And so I'm looking at all these different markets, seeing all these different types of properties. I'm getting all this feedback. So I just love the kind of flywheel effect that that has where it makes me better. And when I'm better, it gets the, the students better results. When the students get better results, I get better. And it just keeps on going in this really great cycle. And it's all work that I just really, really love doing and that I can do from anywhere and that isn't super stressful. So there's just a lot of it that for me personally, with my kind of lifestyle goals, really maps quite well. Yeah, I really love a lot of the stuff that you just said there. So I mean, I think there's a saying out there that 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 I, gets repeated a lot. Um, you know, those that can do and those that can't teach. And I think it's the most wrong thing in the world, right? I think teaching is the next step. Like once you get good at doing it, the best way to scale is to teach other people how to do it. Um, so, I mean, it's a natural evolution and you're totally right. Teaching somebody is a totally different mindset. It's a totally different framework. Um, and once you teach somebody how to do something, you get good at that. You get better because you're better at you know, being able to articulate it. So, I mean, it makes you better on two different levels. Um, so I'd love to get into the B&B inner circle now. Um, what does that coaching platform look like? What do the students get? Um, let's just kind of go like broad strokes real quick and then we'll dive deeper into it. Yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. Like we're, we're having a lot of fun with it. It's basically a, it, it's structured as a six month program. Um, sometimes we work with members for a bit longer than that. Sometimes a bit shorter because it, it really depends on what their specific goals are. Um, and so basically what, it, what the way it works is we'll work with people to help them invest in short-term rentals. But what that actually looks like varies because sometimes they're coming in, they want to buy their first short-term rental property and they want to walk through everything kind of in, in a relatively linear A to Z type fashion. Other times they maybe own a short-term rental already that they want to optimize, make sure it's up to par and then go buy more. Sometimes they come in and they have long-term rentals and they want to assess whether they should convert some of those over to short-term rental and then go buy some more. So it varies a little bit in terms of the actual path. Um, but what they get is basically all of all of the the different kind of strategies, tools, everything that Riley and I use. We built like a backend training portal that has all of that content laid out in in um, it, like in a really organized way where they can work through, get the training, get the lessons, and then have access to the actual tools, like the analysis spreadsheets that we use, you know, the organizing checklist that we use, all the different stuff. And then basically, we have some some uh, success managers. So like. Um, there's a, a guy, Jacob, who's been working with me for the last three, four years now, knows this business inside and out really, really well. And so he basically acts as a success manager within our, our program. And so every new member that comes on board, they do an initial onboarding call with Jacob. He maps out what we call the implementation pathway for that member that shows them this is exactly what you're going to do in what order. And then he's literally like checking in with them every single week, several times throughout the week to make sure they're on track. And then they're interfacing with Jacob and with Riley and I asking questions and with the other members of the community where they can ask questions, you know, get feedback, that kind of stuff. Um, and so we're just basically working with them until they actually accomplish that goal um, of getting that next short-term rental or getting their, their long-term rental transitioned over and then picking up another one, whatever that might be for them. Absolutely. Tremendous answer. So, I mean, I'm just talking coaching spaces, right? They tend to, they tend to teach, you know, one offer one path, one goal is the best way to do it because it's the most scalable way. And obviously it looks like you have variable paths. You're, you're building customizable plans. Yeah. Do you have like five to 10 paths that you tend to put somebody on or are you literally one-on-one -on -one custom to that person? Yeah. So it's, it's um, like the way that we look at it is there's like three or four different buckets that most people are going to fall into. And, and there are certainly some people that come to us like 
um, that it's just not a good fit. It doesn't align well. And we'll just tell them that and say like, honestly, with where you're at and what you're looking to do, it's not a really good fit. Here's another person that can help you or kind of point them in a different direction. But the people that we work with tend to fall into like three to four different buckets for what the path is going to look like. There's customization within that path of exactly what the, the specifics look like. But generally, it's going to be it's going to be one of kind of three or four different buckets that are um, that we can help them to define, and then we're going to add some nuance to it. And it's it's not so. so I think that like what I what I've come to realize is I think there's a really there's a lot of of scalability to a one size fits all offer, um, and there's nothing there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But I think depending on um, on how uh, sophisticated, I want to say the, the goal is like in terms of like, there's just so many variables when you're investing in real estate, maybe you're going to partner with someone. Maybe you're going to finance it yourself. Maybe you have good credit. Maybe you don't have such great, good credit. Maybe you're looking to buy a rural property. Maybe you're looking to buy a property in the city. Like there's, there's so much individual variance that for, for this specific um, thing that we're helping people to do, it just wouldn't work that well as a one size fits all. Um, because it would, it, it'd be tricky. And the challenge with this too, is that like people are investing a lot of their hard earned money into buying the property. Right. So if they, if they get into something that kind of fits and it doesn't fit perfectly, then they, they buy the wrong asset. That's going to really set them back. So we just believe that we'd rather work with a smaller number of people and make sure that we get them really killer results as opposed to work with a larger number of people and risk them not getting what they want. Buying the wrong property would be, would be obviously really horrible, things like that. So we're trying to, we're trying to really optimize the, the success rate of the members as opposed to the number of members that we can work with. Yeah, which is such an interesting you know, proposition, right? Where you're, you're kind of faced with that dilemma of, do I want to help a ton of people and give them a little bit or do I want to go deeper? And I, I'm super thankful that you're taking the approach of helping people really deeply. It's something that we care a lot about too, in the sense that like, I think there's a lot of focus amongst real estate agents and gurus about the grind and really like going in one direction where there's not a lot of as much, I should say, coaching on like reverse engineering from an end of lifestyle scenario. So, you know, Kudos to you guys for for maybe sacrificing some bigger profits in the long run to have some really happy people in the in the short run. So, what I want to transition to along those lines is, you know, how you're personally designing your life. So, if you were to have a billion dollars in the bank and a hundred lifetimes of cash flow, how would you structure your life? Yeah, that's that's a tough question. Um, I've been thinking about that, and like I I don't know that it would be a whole lot different. Um, I really don't know that my life would be a whole lot different if I had a, if I had a ton of money. Yeah. Like at, at the end of the day, like what I, what I really love to do is um, like what, what I, what I look at when I look at lifestyle design is I want to be able to do what I want with the people I want to do it with uh, when I want to do it. I don't believe in the idea. Like I think that freedom without responsibility um, ends up being just chaos. Like I kind of did that when I, when I, my business failed initially and I went and traveled and vagabonded. And it's sweet for a few months. But then after that, it gets really empty and it's just kind of chaotic. Like I really, really like having big goals to work towards. And I like that that growth process. So for me, like the work that I'm doing right now, if I had a, a bunch more money, I'd probably just grow things faster. Because right now, one of the things I'm really enjoying is building the team um, and getting my, my team and our members to like be, scaling that business 
Um, it's just really fun because there's like a lot of wealth creation for a lot of different people. It's really awesome to see. It's really fun for like Jacob, who, like I, I mentioned, I've been working with for a number of years now for me, me to be able to provide more to him and really see him grow and see him shine. So like, I think some of that stuff would probably accelerate, but in terms of what I'm doing day to day, like I live a pretty good life where I've got an awesome partner. I live where I want to live. I travel when I want to travel. Um, you know, I, I, enjoy the work that I do. So I don't think that a whole awful lot would, would change too much. Love this. Love this. Love this. Love this. Um, you said something very, very important just there. Um, when you were in Asia, right? You said you had a lot of freedom, but you didn't have, you know, something was lacking, right? You had freedom, but you had no fulfillment, right? So I mean, I could totally relate to you there. Um, let's just like throw it back four years. You know, I was making like 150, 200 grand a year. Um, pretty much totally automated business. I was working 10, maybe 15 hours a week. Um, but I had no fulfillment. I mean, my client base was, you know, customers that I was working as a 1099 contractor for. We communicated via email. Um, and that was basically it. So I had very little social interaction. My life was terrible. I was making a ton of money, not spending very much time. And like, you'd be amazed how much I hated it. Right. So, I mean, could we talk about like how you came to the conclusion that the freedom is not going to equal fulfillment necessarily. And like what path you went on. Yeah. I think it was one of those things that like people told me growing up and it was just one of those things that for me, I had to get there and then go, Oh, this is what they were talking about. And it was like, you know, I remember like, so when I, before I even started my own business, I, I always had it in my head, like a hundred thousand dollars a year was the number. And when I was like 21, I made a hundred thousand dollars a year working, working in this, in this company, coaching, uh, coaching people, like managing this team. And it was awesome. I loved it. And I was like, Oh, the money didn't really like matter. Like I don't actually, I remember, I remember when I finally realized that I had made a hundred thousand dollars in that year. And I was like, that really didn't make any difference. Um, and so that was like that first piece of the money, not really mattering that much because once you have enough, like, so for me, not having money, that sucks. Like that's really awful. And I would never want to go back to there, but everything over like 70, $80,000 a year doesn't really make a big difference to me. So that was, I think like the first part of me cluing into that. And then the other piece was like realizing that when I left that, and then I was just like, I was still doing something that I enjoy. Like I was being an entrepreneur, starting my own business, but it wasn't um, like, working with my, just myself and working in a product space where I wasn't interacting with people and like having deep, meaningful connections with people, that was a lot less enjoyable to me. And then when I went and traveled and like left it all and I was like, okay, this is going to solve it, right? I'm just going to go and get the excitement that I want from traveling and seeing new places. And it was awesome for a few months. And then after that wore, wore off, it was like, oh yeah, this is another beautiful waterfall that I hiked to today. This is another like beautiful country that I'm seeing. There's another beautiful beach, but like Where's the fulfillment? It's all just like, it's just all short term, right? It's all like you, you get that hit when you see the waterfall or you lay on the beach or whatever. And then it very quickly goes away. Whereas when I'm, when I'm working with people and I'm seeing them grow and I'm getting like helping them to, to create like lasting change where they're going to like, it's going to, you know, improve their financial future. They can spend more time with their kids. They can do something that they enjoy more than their corporate nine to five. Like that stuff, like that doesn't go away. That sticks with me. And like with my team, when I see them have like a breakthrough and they, oh, wow, I get this now. And they're like, that shows up for them over the next weeks and next months. And I see them just like grow and evolve as a human. That stuff really excites me. And I find it's like way, way more long-term um, enjoyment and fulfillment that I get from that. 
and don't get me wrong. Like I still love to go and hike and see something beautiful. I love to like go, go cool places. And that is fun. I just, I've realized that I can't rely on that for the long-term fulfillment. That's, it just doesn't do it for me. So this is so awesome. And I'm so thankful that you're diving into this because I, I think that you've thought through it more than a lot of people have. And a lot of sometimes even the people that we talk to and it's just so cool that you've had the ability to come full circle. You've got to experience and attempt some of these, you know, attempts at fulfillment. So with somebody that's starting the journey, like this is something I think about a lot. Most people who are very intentional will get financially free if they dedicate say 10 years to it or, or something like that. And so if you were to start your journey again, how much would you focus on the journey being fun or would you buckle down and just, you know, grind it out to get to where you want to be quickly? Oh yeah, man. I, I remember, I remember I was in, I was living in San Diego a few years ago and I, I, um, it was, it was this period where like my coaching business, when I was teaching people to manage properties, it was blowing up a lot. And I was like really grinding. Like every area of my life was hyper optimized. Like I woke up, had this routine, like everything was just so, and I literally planned my day out to like in 15 minute increments. And I was like operating like a machine. And I remember I just, I wrote this long note to myself this one day because I like discovered patience. I discovered patience for the first time and actually got what it meant. And for literally my whole life up until that point, I had it that patience and, and um, what's the word like ambition could, could not coexist. Like if you were patient, you lacked ambition. And if you, uh, if you had ambition, you were impatient. Like I just had it. Those two things were inextricably linked. And it just occurred to me in this day. I don't even remember what it was that made it click, but I remember everything I wrote down. And it was like this discovery that I had been looking at it as though life was a sprint. And then people would tell me life's not a sprint, life's a marathon. And what I discovered is that life's not a sprint or a marathon. It's not even a race because in a race, there's like an end goal and you get there and you win. Life doesn't have that. Like life, you're literally just walking through a park and then one day it ends. It's just over. Like there's no finish line. There's no big celebration. There's nothing at the end. And I realized that like, if that's what life really is, then like you can have ambition and be like, oh, I'm going to go here. This is where I'm going to, the direction I'm going to walk, where I want to get to. But if you just get, like, if you just focus your entire life and I'm speaking about, I'm speaking to myself. Like if I just focus my entire life on getting to that destination, I may or may not get there before it all just ends. So if I, if I'm only focusing on getting to that end goal and I'm like, like you said, like grinding it out just to get there as quickly as possible, like, sure, I may or, I may or may not get there, but like, it, it's all going to have been for nothing to a certain extent. Like if it ends along the way, it's just a really high stakes game to play. And what I've, what I've learned along, along, like over the years has been that like getting there isn't really that amazing right? Like actually the process of getting there is what's really enjoyable. So to me, that's kind of how I see life more is like this walk through a park where, you know, I'm just stopping and smelling the roses and enjoying it as I go. So like, you know, when I'm growing my business, I'm taking the time to appreciate all these things like my client success and like the, the impact that I'm making on other people and like also taking time to just enjoy time off and like have a good life along the way. Um, and I've still got this ambition, but I'm way more patient about it because like at some point it's just going to end and I don't know when that's going to be. And I want to make sure that I sucked everything out of life as I went through and didn't just wait till the end to, to get enjoyment out of it. So I would definitely take the more patient path 
and enjoy the process of getting there. Now, that's an absolutely tremendous answer. I've never heard the way you phrased that before. Um, obviously, I've heard the saying, you know, life is a marathon, it's not a sprint. Um, but you just took the race out of it. And I'm going to have to think about that a little bit before I can really have a good response there. But I really love the way that that's put. Um, and it's just, it's a very astute observation. Um, and discovering patience. I mean, I think that's something that's important. Um, there are some things that you need to do for a long period of time before you're going to see results. So, you know, patience is important. Um, and it, yeah, I mean, just very cool stuff here. Um, so cool. I mean, what, James, like, what is your vision for like the next 12 months? What are you guys working on over there? Yeah. So we, we just, I just sat down with Riley um, and we just crafted out like our mission, vision, values for the company, which is a really, really cool thing to, to get to do because we're building a team now. And so we need everyone to be aligned in the same direction. And so our, our, our big, like our big, hairy, audacious goal is to help our, our members and our team to acquire, profitably acquire a billion dollars in short-term rental properties. So that's the, the big goal, the kind of the, the North Star that we're, that we're working towards. And so over the next 12 months, it's really just um, like doubling down on getting clients results, really making sure they're getting great results with the clients that we have, continuing to work with, with more clients and continuing to build out our team and the way that we operate, just kind of refining the way that we operate. One of the things I'm really excited about, I talked to you about Jacob, our success manager, and we're, we're now starting to work with other success managers who have come through our mentorship program, have gotten the results, have learned the whole process and done it themselves, and then having them then work with us and mentor other people um, and, and be that, that kind of success manager for, for new people coming in. So just building out those systems, making it big, better, getting clients better results and continuing to work with more students. That's, that's really the main thing. And then on, like a, on a personal side, um, like just traveling, enjoying life. I love that things are, are open to travel again now. Uh, my partner's got a remote job for the first time since I, since we've been together. So that's really fun, exciting, getting to, to travel more together. Um, yeah, just kind of enjoying life along the way, obviously. Really cool answer. You know what, dude? I think this is, we're probably close to episode 70. I think you're the first person that rolled in a personal goal into their vision for the next 12 months. <laughs> so congratulations on that. Um, you're obviously taking care of your personal life and, and, you know, you're, you're being mindful of smelling the roses, which, you know, a lot of us entrepreneurs forget. I certainly do. Um, cool, man. So anybody looking to partner with you or work with your team, um, get started with, um, what you're doing with the B and B inner circle, like what would be the best way for them to get in touch with you? Yeah, they can, they can just find me on whether it's Instagram or Facebook, um, YouTube and just reach out. Uh, if they want to learn more about B and B inner circle. They can just go to B and B inner circle.com. Um, they can also reach out to us from there. Um, but yeah, just either find me on socials or go to bnbinnercircle.com. Perfect. All right. Well, you know where to find them, James. I mean, I just want to take, um, I'm going to thank you so much for, for sharing your life and your business with us. Um, and to those of you out there chasing freedom, freedom is acquired one action at a time. If you do nothing else, simply commit to taking one of the actions that James has outlaid in this interview and commit to taking it within the next seven days. Tell somebody you know so that they can hold you accountable. And before you know it, you too will be living a life of freedom. Thank you guys for tuning in, and we'll catch you on the next one. Please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Engagement is like gold to us. We can't do what we're doing without it. Reviews and subscriptions, particularly on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube, are worth more than money. So please do what you can to support the show. 